You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now, when Yahweh was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for Yahweh has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked the hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, Behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and struck the water, saying, Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of Yahweh has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. 
But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water, and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says Yahweh, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of Yahweh. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 798. This is 2 Kings chapter 2 that we just read on Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. And it's a fun chapter. It's an enjoyable and entertaining and mysterious and confusing chapter, actually, in some ways. A little bit surprising. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. We're also going to talk in this episode about a handyman's guide to masculinity. Newsletter number 82 from John Seal, actually, at AaronWren.com. We're going to talk about a lady in Oregon who is not the right type of person, according to officials, to be adopting children and why that might be with an article from the Alliance Defending Freedom in view. We will explore that story. We'll also touch on Richard Reeves and Serena Sigelito's article from January 19th of last year in Public Discourse, asking the question, can fatherhood cure the modern male malaise? And lastly, we'll talk about a billionaire who is buying up lots of farmland in the state of Colorado, a New York billionaire who's looking to overhaul agriculture and change the culture of agriculture in our state and beyond. An interesting story sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, published in the Colorado Sun. Also, the piece from the public discourse sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez. All of that and more we will discuss in this podcast episode. But first, let's talk about 2 Kings chapter 2 and two prophets of God back-to-back who have very similar names. Why are their names so similar? It seems like 
that was unnecessary. <laughs> it would be easier to keep them straight if either there was more time between the two of them or if their names were a little less alike. Elijah and Elisha, here we have them in 2 Kings chapter 2. We have Elijah passing the baton, so to speak, to Elisha. And I don't understand so much of what is going on in this chapter, near as much as I wish I did. I know what it says, but what does it mean? Elijah several times tells Elisha, please stay here. Like he doesn't want Elisha to go with him where it is that he's going. Is that Elijah having gotten so used to being on his own that it's a bother to him to have somebody to mentor who wants to watch his every move, hang on his every word. It certainly does seem Elisha looks up to Elijah, but then Elijah perhaps can be forgiven for being rather attached to his solitude. He's spent a lot of time on his own. In fact, at one point, he wanted to die because he thought he was the only one left in Israel who was jealous for the name of Yahweh. In the days of Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah thought that everybody else in Israel had either bowed the knee to Baal or had kissed the image of Baal as a show of their surrender to the new religion of the Phoenicians being institutionalized, the so-called cult of the Yahwists being persecuted and purged from Israel by Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah thought he was the only one, and God told Elijah, no, you're not, if I can paraphrase here, GSV, not actually the ESV, which is what I, as a rule, read on this podcast. No, you're not the only one. I have preserved 7,000 for myself who have not bowed the knee or kissed Baal. And you might think that's happy news, but then sometimes people are like this. I know people who are like this, who feel conflicted. On the one hand, it pains them to be so isolated, but then to come to terms with it, at a certain point, maybe they pride themselves on being on their own. And maybe there's a certain selfishness, and maybe Elijah feels like he's given quite enough to this point He's done his part, and then some. Why does he need to prove to anyone, least of all himself, that he is invested in the well-being of Israel, and he didn't have a mentor that we read of in the text? It was just Elijah and God. So whoever comes after Elijah shouldn't need a mentor because whoever comes after Elijah should be content to have God be the one who teaches him and who instructs him and who guides him and who directs him. Maybe that's why Elijah tells Elisha several times, please stay here. Don't follow me. Maybe it's a test. Maybe Elijah is just testing Elisha to see how adamant are you? How committed are you? If that's what it is, if it is a test, intentionally or unintentionally, Elisha passes, he's insistent, and he says consistently in answer to Elijah, as Yahweh lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so it seems to me as though Elisha 
doesn't just love God. He does love God and he fears God and he wants to serve God, but he also loves and admires and really looks up to Elijah. In fact, the very last thing that Elisha asks of Elijah is that he would get a double portion of Elijah's spirit. What's up with that? Again, I don't understand that nearly as much as I would like. I think I maybe understand a little bit of it that Elisha recognizes something special about Elijah specifically. Yes, it's God who is working through Elijah, and that's the greatest thing. That's the decisive thing. But Elisha recognizes something particular about Elijah as a person, and he loves and admires Elijah and the way that Elijah does things and the way that Elijah talks. It seems to me as though Elisha views Elijah as a hero and as a father figure. In fact, there's evidence that he views him as a father figure in verse 12. When Elijah is caught up to heaven, and more about that in just a minute, but when he's caught up to heaven by these chariots of fire and horses of fire, Elisha sees it and he cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then it says he saw him no more. So the last thing perhaps that Elijah hears is Elisha saying, my father, my father, in reference to who? Presumably in reference to Elijah, as in Elisha sees Elijah as a father figure. And who knows what kind of a father Elisha had. Maybe he didn't have a very invested father by blood. But in any event, this is what he says. And what's remarkable is from a human standpoint, from an interpersonal standpoint, this is in the text. And I think it's good. I think this is to our benefit, practically, that this is in the text, that this is the sentiment of Elisha with regards to Elijah, and the request is granted. A double portion of Elijah's spirit may have everything to do with what it is about Elijah that God is pleased with to use Elijah to do what he's done in Israel. Elijah has demonstrated that he and God have a very special relationship. In fact, it's so special that there's only two people. There's only two men in the Bible who are said to have not died, but to have been caught up to heaven. Enoch is the first. He walked with God and then He was no more on the earth because God took him. And what's that about? I don't know. And you don't either. But God knows. And it makes us wonder. And it's fantastic. And it's enchanting in its way. It's very charming. But it just goes to show that God sometimes has a very special relationship with individuals in their generation. Or even when you're surveying all generations, when only two men are said to have had this happened, that they were just caught up to heaven by God. Sometimes God has very special relationships with particular men, and someday we'll have to ask him about that. Someday we'll probably want to know more about why Enoch and why Elijah made the cut. What was different? What was being accomplished with not letting them die, like so many other servants of God were allowed to pass on, pass away, sometimes dying peacefully, other times dying 
violently and being martyred for their faith in any event. The latter half of verse 12 says, Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Basically, Elisha starts doing in reverse what it is that Elijah had done just prior to their crossing over here. The waters part, and Elisha crosses over on the dry land. The sons of the prophets are also rather amusing features of this chapter. They keep asking before Elijah is taken up to heaven. They keep asking Elisha, do you know that today Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And maybe the response of Elisha to the sons of the prophets is is being irritated because he's not exactly excited about this fact. He doesn't want Elijah to go anywhere. He likes having Elijah with him. He likes following Elijah around, apparently. He's a close study of the character and the mannerisms of Elijah. Maybe that's why he says, yes, I know it. Keep quiet, if I may. Shut up. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Shut up. Shush. Enough. He runs into these sons of the prophets after Elijah's been taken up to heaven, and they offer to go searching for Elijah. We'll send 50 men. And Elisha says, no. And they keep pressing. They keep nagging him until the point that it says he's ashamed. Why was he ashamed? Was he embarrassed? Because they just wouldn't drop it. Finally, he relents and he says, send. Fine, whatever, go. They send 50 men. And for three days, 50 men search. And they don't find Elijah because he's been taken up to heaven. They were looking in the wrong place. They're looking on earth and not looking in heaven. It's always the last place you look. But they can't get there to look. They come back and they say, we couldn't find him. And Elisha is like, did I not say to you, do not go? But then it says in verse 19, the men of the city said to Elisha, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. What follows is a miracle. And this miracle demonstrates that Elisha is the man of God. He's speaking the words of Yahweh after Yahweh, but he also performs a sign and a wonder. And this sign and this wonder is not just in an abstract sense proof that he is the man of God. It's also very beneficial to this people. It's a blessing to this people that they would have water that doesn't kill them and it doesn't cause miscarriages. Water that's good to drink and it's healthy and it's clean. After this, what might surprise you is one of my favorite anecdotes in the Old Testament (laughs) because it's wild. Verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Elisha turns around. When he sees them, he curses them in the name of Yahweh. And that is to say, he was pretty frustrated. He was pretty upset. What were the exact words? It doesn't say. It just says, he cursed them in the name of Yahweh. Did he say, Yahweh curse you? Did he say, God damn you? The effect or the gist is the same as God damn you. And it's in the text. And how about that? Was it appropriate for him to say, God damn you, to these boys jeering at him? The response of God, apparently, with two bears coming out of the woods, two she-bears, 
specifically, coming out of the woods and tearing these 42, as in there's at least 42 boys. This is quite the unruly mob of young people, young men, young boys, would seem to indicate that he was within the bounds. It was fair for him to damn these youth because they were awful. They had what was coming to them for being so disrespectful, not just of a man who was older. That's a major party foul. That's a major no-no, but a man of God. And if they didn't know or if they didn't care or if that was all the more reason for them to mock this man of God or perhaps their parents had put them up to it or perhaps word had been buzzing around town in Bethel, the response of God to Elisha cursing these young people, these young men, is pretty interesting and it's surprising. Elisha does not do some sign and wonder and miracle in Bethel to make these boys well-behaved and mannerly. In the previous instance, he made the water good. Thus says Yahweh, I have healed this water. But in this instance, perhaps it's much like in the previous. And you've got bad seed. You've got boys who are rotten, and not a few of them, but a lot of them. And the response is to remove them. They are now removed from the equation by two she-bears. And then he goes on. He goes on to Mount Carmel and from there returns to Samaria. So that was a thing. That was a thing that happened. And actually, I think that the inclusion of this in the text, that God is the kind of God, he has the character of one who takes pity on a people who have bad drinking water, that's more palatable to us We accept that more readily because we're conditioned to by the sorts of things that we really focus on. We focus on the positive and encouraging K-love incidents in the Bible. The bit about the 42 boys being mauled by two she-bears, yeah, we don't know what to do with that. And so we just ignore that. We pretend that's not in there, actually. We don't talk about that. If we're doing youth ministry, And a lot of the youth who are showing up are disrespectful to their elders. They're disrespectful of the adults who participate in youth ministry. They're disrespectful to their own parents. But then if they're disrespectful towards their own parents, why wouldn't they be disrespectful to other adults? The burden is always put on the adults in the room. As in, the adults must have made a mistake. We must have missed something. It must be our fault. This is our error. We didn't provide something that they needed, and so we should feel really bad. Or we did something that provoked these young men. It's typically the young men. Hormones and all have a lot to do with that or everything to do with that. But our prerogative is to say, let's gently redirect or perhaps we'll try to, from more of a procedure standpoint, change the dynamic for the whole room, for the whole program, for all the youth, rather than confront and correct the individual offenders and what ends up happening as a result. The bad attitude spreads. The more fun it looks, the less painful are the consequences for being openly disrespectful. Irreverent, yes. Disruptive, yes. Bullying towards other youth, perhaps, sure. But bullying towards adults? as it's seen as more and more fun 
and there's no cost to it, you get more and more young men who say, yeah, this is a great game. I like tormenting the bald-headed man and taunting him. I like provoking him. I like jeering at him. Oh, this is great. Yeah. The last thought that would ever occur to us is to refer back to 2 Kings chapter 2 and to say anything even remotely adjacent to Elisha's attitude is appropriate. From my experience, having helped with youth in Ohio, in Montana, here in Colorado, having seen variations on the same theme of youth ministry, whether it's on Sunday mornings with teaching middle school youth, or it's on Wednesday nights with Bible studies, youth group, Awana. I've been involved in youth ministry across the country in every church we've been to, because every church we go to, that's an important thing, that there would be youth. You can't have a youth program without youth, but there should be youth. And it's not the sign of a healthy church when there are no youth, when it's all old people. Did they not have any children? If they did have children, where are their children? Why are their children all not here? Because they can't get along with them? Curious. Do they not have grandchildren? If they're of that age, if they have grandchildren, why are their grandchildren not here? Can they not get along with them? Do they not want them around? Is this an old people church because the old people are selfish and they have no idea what to do with their children when they have them and they don't take much interest in their grandchildren when they have them? And so their grandchildren and their children who are grown are either not going to church anywhere or they're going to church across town. It's a curious thing. It is a puzzlement, as the king says in The King and I. Consistently again and again, I have seen those who oversee youth programs, who are directors of youth programs, who are youth pastors, those who volunteer in youth programs, and yes, the parents of the youth struggle mightily when it comes to correcting bad attitudes and bad behaviors in youth, particularly young men. The go-to first is always to try and ignore it. And let's just focus on the well-behaved youth. And let's pretend that they're the only youth. And then maybe the poorly behaved youth will see that we're giving attention to the well-behaved youth and they will also want to be well-behaved if this is just a ploy to get attention. And let's just hope that they keep on coming because they clearly need Jesus and you wouldn't want to correct them and you wouldn't want to rebuke them and you wouldn't want to for sure tell them they're not welcome back. Again, if they're going to act like this, if they're going to conduct themselves in this disrespectful, rude, obnoxious way and not be correctable, you wouldn't want to tell them that they should just stay home until they're ready to be polite and ready to be respectful. You wouldn't ever want to say that. So what typically happens is bad behavior, bad attitudes are ignored or they're joked about. Let's make it into a joke and let's try to redirect them. But then if they're not willing to be redirected, let's try a quick correction, short, brief. And if that doesn't work, well, we'll go back to ignoring and then we'll maybe try again with a quick correction. And maybe at some point they'll just get bored. They'll get tired of it and their parents will stop forcing them to go for appearances sake. And that's the solution to the problem. But rarely, if ever, is the youth told, don't come back if you're going to act like this. Not only are you not getting anything out of it, but also you're ensuring, you're guaranteeing that your peers also are not getting anything out of it. 
with the way you're carrying on. This is unacceptable behavior and you will be removed. We will call your parents if you can't drive yourself or we will tell you to get in your car and go home if you're going to keep acting like this. Very rarely to never is that the even conversation. You wouldn't even want to have that conversation, especially if you're helping to facilitate the youth program because immediately the avoidance and the inaction and the non-response will be spiritualized and you talking about let's actually do something about it. Let's be assertive and let's have consequences. That gets actually presented as unspiritual. You are not sufficiently like Christ because you're talking about speaking as one with authority and wielding authority to say that's enough. In the case of 2 Kings chapter 2, and we'll just finish off with this thought before we move on to current events, topics, and our other stories and essays and links to discuss in this episode. One thing you can say about Elisha's response is it stops the taunting and the jeering of the man of God. It does do that. And it does appear as though God is on board with this correction. This is an appropriate correction of young men in particular who ought to know better, and maybe they do. And if you don't address it now, give it 10 years, give it 20 years, this will be an unruly mob of grown men who continue acting like this. And this is how you get unruly mobs who are trying to tear the door down to rape the guest who was just passing through and you invited them in for a meal and to lodge for the night. We see that in the city of Sodom. We see that also in the story of the Levite and his concubine passing through Gibeon. At a certain point, young men who act like these young men were relating to Elisha, they grow up. And because they're reveling in misbehavior, they just keep looking for more and more outrageous misbehavior to revel in together. And they go from being just annoying and disrespectful to being downright murderous, if murder is what amuses them next. They become gang rapists, if rape is what amuses them next. It's a mercy to the city and to the region and to all Israel. It's a mercy to Bethel, actually, after a fashion, that evil, even, yes, in the hearts of young men, small boys would be restrained because apparently their fathers weren't teaching them respect. Their fathers were not insisting that they be polite and show honor to those who were older, and especially to a man of God, the man of God in Israel. Their fathers weren't instructing them and weren't attending to their moral development, and so this is what happens. This is exactly the sort of a thing that happens with young men who don't have fathers who are involved, who are assertive, who are strong, who are direct, who are consistent. Take note. It's in the text. I didn't put it there, but y'all should stop glossing over it and skipping it and pretending it's not there. Moving right along, though, as I said we would, after having addressed that, (laughs) not instead of addressing that. I used a word in yesterday's podcast, which as I was reviewing my published episode, I got to wondering, is that actually a word? Did I just make up a word? Because sometimes I do that and I'm not the only one. I know 
But when I do wonder if I've just made up a word, maybe what I was supposed to say was this word instead, because that's definitely a word. What I'll do is I'll go and check a dictionary online. I'll search for my word. And if it doesn't come up in the dictionary, then I know, yep, I reached for a word that doesn't exist. Maybe it should exist, but it doesn't. And some other word that does exist perhaps should have been what I used. The word in yesterday's episode, or rather the word in the episode from the day before yesterday, I should say, because I only reviewed the episode from the day before yesterday, yesterday, if that makes sense. The word was chivalric, and it's an adjective. According to Cambridge Dictionary, it means relating to or typical of chivalry, the system of behavior followed by knights in the medieval period. The chivalric code was based on virtues like duty and honor. Dressed in a full suit of armor, he is the very image of the chivalric hero. Those are some sentences, for example, in which you would use the word chivalric. A chivalric man is polite, honest, fair, and kind toward women. He was a really wonderful chivalric man. He was chivalric and a little naive around women, but seemed a little lonely. Fewer examples. In Don Quixote, Cervantes parodied the chivalric romances that were popular in his day. Many of the World War I poets exposed their culture's delusory idea of war as chivalric, noble, or glamorous. They liked to project a chivalric vision of masculinity in which women were dependent on them. I don't like those examples. Also, I think it's weird, Cambridge Dictionary, that these are filed under fewer examples. Is that to say less common examples or what? You're the dictionary after all. Anyway, chivalric is a word. Suffice to say, a synonym would be chivalrous, which is, as I was listening, what I was thinking maybe I should have used instead, where I said chivalric, maybe I should have said chivalrous, but then apparently they mean the same thing. So it's fine. It's totally cool. But if you haven't checked out yet my episode, the one before last, on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Courtly Love and the Cynics of Chivalry, you can if you subscribe for 99 cents a month, right away, listen to that episode. If you don't subscribe, well then, stay tuned. February 1st, it will be available to the general public, and you should check it out, because it's good, if I do say so myself, and I do. But speaking of chivalric and all such notions, Newsletter 82, A Handyman's Guide to Masculinity. A Practical Guide Towards Becoming a Holy Man. John Seal published this at AaronRen.com, November 20th of last year. He writes, as a Presbyterian cultural renewal entrepreneur and social impact consultant, he is a Dr. John Seal, by the way, and I quote, Most men do not have the time or patience for theory and abstractions. We are by nature a hands-on, practical lot it is for this reason that much of the religious discussions about masculinity, when they occur, leave us cold. Their pious sentiments provide few practical steps. It is not surprising, then, that men are turning to secular podcasts for their advice on masculinity. In the past few months, there's been a growing awareness of the crisis of masculinity. Much of this awareness can be attributed to the excellent work of Richard Reeves in his book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Man is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. By the way, one of our other links 
will be an interview with the same Richard Reeves. So stay tuned for that a little later in this episode. Yet even here, John Seal writes, his solutions to the crisis, framed primarily as public policy suggestions, provide few actionable guidances for the average man, such as the case with most social science analysis of the crisis. They are long on analysis and short on solutions. In some cases, this rises to the level of academic malpractice. If the crisis is real, as they suggest, if the felt needs are deep, as they indicate, then achievable and aspirational guidance needs to be provided. Such is the aim of this essay. The church is culpable in some aspects of this crisis by piling on to it, creating distractions from the real issues, and being silent on topics that need frank, open discussion. In the formative decades of young men who are entering adulthood, evangelical youth groups adopted the purity culture movement. It damaged men and women alike. Its analysis is that boys and men are inherently sexual predators, best described as toxic. Zachary Wagner writes in Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality, that, quote, the teaching that hyperactive and out-of-control sexual desire is an unavoidable part of being male is one of the most damaging messages of purity culture, end quote. Here, the church, under the guise of discipleship, is promoting a disparaging view of masculinity and a distorted view of sexuality. Needed within these circles, Wagner argues, is a, quote, program of rehumanization, end quote, of masculinity, along with the advocacy of the lifelong learning of the virtue of chastity. This is a tall order because the evangelical church has a hard time dealing with physical embodiment without spiritual Gnosticism and sexuality without fundamentalist moralism. Neither serve the crisis of masculinity well, and the history of the purity culture emphasis in youth groups makes many men naturally look to other sources of guidance other than the church. When the church talks of men's issues, too often it is limited to debates on complementarianism versus egalitarianism in marriage and church leadership. Major public debates on masculinity have rocked evangelical denominations. Meanwhile, the issues regarding men's identity go largely undiscussed and ignored. Casual reassertions of traditionalism are not going to be sufficient to the complex crisis now facing men in terms of their vocations, relationships, and worldview. For them, the very idea of masculinity itself is under assault. And yes, that's quite right. It's quite right. Quite true. They need a deeper analysis and more practical guidance. Moreover, increasingly evangelical megachurches and denominations are dealing with their own crisis of expressive toxic masculinity seen in sexual abuse, infidelity, and cover-up. By the way, I know I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I hate the term toxic masculinity. Why not just call it sin? Why not just call it sin? Sinful men behaving sinfully. And when it's women, don't call it toxic femininity. Just call it sinful women behaving sinfully. Anyway, it is not as if meaningful leadership is going to come from here. There's some evidence that believing men in search of an alternative to what is being provided in evangelical churches are turning to Eastern Orthodoxy. Alt-right traditionalists are finding this a potential spiritual home, such as the finding of journalist Colleen Carroll Campbell in her book, The New Faithful, Why Young Adults Are Embracing Christian Orthodoxy. Why might this be the case? Young people are looking for re-enchantment, mysticism, and altruism, and are finding it in the liturgy and ancient practices of orthodoxy. Perhaps an even deeper explanation than a desire to convert to orthodoxy is a desire for a holistic worship experience that is embodied, grounded in pre-modern tradition, and shrouded in mystery and beauty. Many want something more from their worship than a black box theater with a rock band and giant plasma TV screen. Entwined in the crisis of masculinity is a pre-modern critique of advanced modernity. 
Young people, and especially young men, are seeking for something more than a suburban, consumerist Christianity light offered by evangelical megachurches. They seek a spirituality that is experiential, practical, and enchanted. Liturgical and sacramental forms of worship are now attracting a new generation in search of a personal spiritual encounter with God. The dominant themes in their search are embodiment, experience, reenchantment, and mystery. These are the same themes that are also having resonance with those seeking to become holy men. Too often, the analysis of the men's crisis resorts to a shallow and superficial traditionalism that focuses on men's traditional functions within the family and society. Traditional roles of men as protector, provider, and procreator are emphasized. One wonders, in keeping with the peas, where is presence? America is faced with three times the number of absent fathers than any other country in the world, 25% versus 7%. But more significant than what men do is who men are or aspire to be. More important than men's function, which can vary in time and place and has no definitive social role, are the characteristics of a holy man that touch on the character of the person and are timeless and universal. It is to these characteristics that we now turn. In addition, in the spirit of the handyman ethos, we will also discuss ways each can begin to be realized in your person. Now, we'll stop right there. This is a much, much longer article than we have time for to read together in this podcast episode. Do check out the rest of it if you have a chance, but notice a few things mentioned in passing here. One, that America has three times the number of fatherless children compared with any other nation in the world. So no, no, this is not just how it's always been. For one, it's not always been this bad in our country. It's gotten a lot worse in recent decades. And there are reasons and there are decisions that were made that were public policy related that worked together with personal decisions, individual decisions of specific men and then groups of men. And then those build and they pile on each other and they snowball like a little bit of snow rolling down a mountainside and picking up more and more snow as it rolls. But even just the fact However, we got to this point that 25% of children have no father in the picture. That is alarming because how many of those 25% are young men, boys, who are not being taught by a father how to be a man? They're not having it modeled what it is that a man is, who a man is, not just what he does, not just the role that he serves, but who he is by God's design. Even those who have a father in the home don't necessarily have a father who is teaching them who they are to be if they are to grow up to be virtuous men. Perhaps something like a chivalric code would be helpful, or perhaps we begin to appreciate why there was a code of chivalry in the first place so as to teach men there is a standard of who you should be. Not just what you do, not just the role that you serve, but who you are, and that expresses itself, you express who you are and what you do and how you do it and why you do it. For God and king, for king and country, for my lady love, for the sake of my children, for the sake of my honor, for the sake of whatever it is, it's going to affect how you express yourself and even who you become. But I appreciate that John Seal here, Dr. John Seal, being given a guest spot at Aaron Wren's Substack, is saying that purity culture decades ago 
presented young men and grown men as inherently predatory, as in the interpretation of men being assertive or being the ones who initiate was turned into an indictment. Instead of being redirected and shown for why that's a good God-given attribute, the obsession was in putting that to death, castrating and bidding the gilding be fruitful, C.S. Lewis would write and did write in The Abolition of Man. We're making men without chests, and then we expect of them virtue, honor, courage? No, that's not how it works. Unfortunately, there was not much attention paid to telos and teleology. What is the telos of boys as boys or men as men? What is the telos of masculinity? Is this what God made? And where do we find evidence in the scriptures that God made a mistake in making men distinct and different? Where do we find evidence that toxic masculinity is the overarching concern instead of needing to honor God with our bodies in a proactive, positive sense, including every man having his own wife, every woman having her own husband, and both rendering to one another their conjugal duties. That was not the emphasis of purity culture as I remember. We're going to help prepare along with your parents, and we're going to encourage your parents also to prepare you along these lines, you young people, for getting married by encouraging you to be diligent in your studies, work, have a good work ethic, have good habits of the mind, study, have good manners towards one another, treat one another with dignity, and as soon as you can, get married. No, 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 no. The mainstream of American evangelicalism decided to focus on promise you're not going to have sex. And oh, by the way, of course you're going to go to college, right? When we say study, we don't just mean, you know, finish high school, graduate. We mean you need to go to college as well because it would be dishonoring to God if you didn't go to college and get a degree and be a professional and wait until you're, who knows, maybe 29, 30 years old to get married because that's clearly the ideal. Promise not to have sex, not just through your teenage years, but also at least until you have finished college too because you don't want to get married during your college years. You really should focus on your studies and be a good steward of the opportunity that it is to go to college. And then after college, you don't necessarily want to get married right away either, right? You want to spend a few years working and saving up, and that's also being a good steward, and on and on it went. My generation had chastity after a fashion, so to speak, presented as don't have sex and also don't get married until you are well-established in your career after having finished college, after having finished high school. And if that doesn't sound so great to you, well, it's probably your own spiritual immaturity. It's probably your own lack of virtue. You're not a very good Christian. And if we can mix in guilt trip about heeding godly counsel, well, then we just advise you whatever it is that we think the consensus of our generation would tell you is going to be successful. We just say that that is godly counsel. Where does it follow that that is godly counsel, in fact? And oh, by the way, that's still not explaining what it means to be a godly man, to be a godly man, and therefore you do these things from that position of knowing 
you are a godly man. Why would that be so uncomfortable when it's okay to talk about men disproportionately with regards to sin and to call it toxic masculinity? Why would it be so problematic to talk about good things about being a man, good things that men being men provide, highlighting that, encouraging that? Simply put, because to go that direction would be so at odds with feminism and so at odds with radical egalitarianism. Even if you're not a radical egalitarian, the fear would be if we go there, we're going to offend those in our midst, those in our community who are egalitarians, who see no meaningful distinction between men and women. You know, unless it's something we can criticize in men, of course. Of course. Young men, grown men. The only men we like are the ones who are good little boys and who know the pecking order in the church and who act as well-behaved as the best young ladies. This has set up a whole generation, at least, of young men to be very disillusioned. To John Seal's point, to not believe that they're going to find encouragement and guidance and affirmation and edification, really, is the biblical term here in the church. And so they look elsewhere. If they continue going to church, they have to keep up a certain routine so as to not be on the outside, to not be regarded as threatening or frightening. But then that's also why a lot of men just don't go to the church. They don't go to church disproportionately, and it's mostly women in many churches. Not all, but in many, because there's nothing positive for the men to contribute as men. And they look around and they see the men who've been present the longest, and they see a pattern. They say, boy, these men look, many of them, rather emasculated. They look wimpy and weak and cowardly and effeminate. And that's not what I want. Ew, gross. Yeah, it is gross. Quite right. And it's wrong. And it's not of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we find in scripture. That's just being conformed to the pattern of this world, unfortunately. But they'll say, For the men who have looked outside of the church, because the church decided in so many cases in America to go that direction with it, they'll say that the men who looked outside of the church to find some inspirations of what it means to be a masculine man, well, that's really being worldly. That's really just following the pattern of this world. And so there's something of an impasse, in other words. And that impasse, I believe personally, can only be corrected. We can only get through the impasse, and resolve this if we start reading the scriptures and finding how masculinity is portrayed, how men are portrayed in scripture. If we reject it, if we qualify it to death, if we say every time we find men being given a positive aspirational model in scripture, we're going to box that in with cultural context, and that's not for today and it's not necessary anymore, then we have a form of godliness and we deny its power, and we shouldn't be surprised when the men check out, when the men don't find that compelling and they find that actually rather bleak. But a better way would be we stop trying to make men without chests. We stop trying to castrate and bid the gelding be fruitful. We stop laughing at virtue and then being surprised to find traitors in our midst. We start actually having the aspiration of men being men and women being women and both men and women together in marriage, a man and a woman having children, raising those children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, then gathering together with other families 
to do likewise together as a local church, and then churches gathering together to form networks of churches. And you build networks of churches like that, and they will grow, and they will endure, and they will be fruitful, and they will multiply, and they will be edifying, and they will honor God, and they'll have a good testimony. In a way, the bloodless vision of yesteryear clearly has not. Next, though, I want to turn your attention to a couple more, an article from the magazine of Alliance Defending Freedom, their November 2023 edition, features a Oregon family, a widow and her children, who, for some reason, are undesirable for the folks who oversee the foster care system in that state. It appears from the article as though her Christian faith, her homeschooling, has a lot to do with the rejection of her application, her attempts to adopt foster children in the state of Oregon. And it's an interesting article. It's longer than we have time to read all of in this episode, but I'll put a link in the description for the podcast episode and you can go and check it out if you'd like to. I, for my part, want to skip down a few sections though to maybe a third of the way into the article after the telling of how Jessica, the woman in question here, lost her husband. He passed away. We pick it up in the third section. The first year, everything felt so unbelievable, Jessica says. Like a bad dream I kept waiting to wake up from. It was really overwhelming. Just shock. Her family and David's, her husband who passed away, her family and David's stayed close, helping with the children. Friends checked in, brought food, prayed. Jessica discovered anew the blessings of living in a small town. People in the community were very supportive, she says. A kind word, a timely gesture. When one of her boys needed help building a derby car for a school project, some men from the church came through. After the first year, the haze of grief started to dissipate, she says. I could look back and reflect and actually be thankful. That was a definite turning point for me. God doesn't change, she learned. He's reliable and he's faithful. He knows what we need and when we need it. Her oldest was just 11 when his father died. So Jessica faced the mysteries of raising teenagers alone. She tried to imagine how David would respond to some of the challenges and tried to keep his memory strong and clear and sweet for his children. This is never a situation I pictured myself in, she says, never in a million years. I'm still learning. You wonder, are the children telling me everything? Are they telling me the things I need to know? They don't have their dad here to walk them through things, but I'll tell them, this is what your dad might say. Moms and dads are different. Sometimes you have to demand respect. It's easy for kids to disrespect their mom more than their dad. You have to be able to say, this is enough. Your dad wouldn't be okay with that. I won't be either. She remembers the effort David made to spend time with each of the children, and she tries to do that too, connecting with them as individuals one-on-one. -on -one. She tries to pass on to them one great lesson she's learned from her loss, to value the time you have with the people you love, to be fully present. Mostly though, quote, I try to remind them of their dad's love. He loved them so much. And so too she reminds them, does their heavenly father. Quote, God says he is the father to the fatherless, 
We're just relying on that, end quote. Now, I want to pause because, again, I don't have time for the purposes of this episode to read all of this article from Faith and Justice, the magazine of Alliance Defending Freedom. Not that it's a bad article, but it's just not what we're focused on primarily in this episode. Appreciate what's being said by a widow regarding the felt loss of her husband who passed away and is no longer a part of their family life. And recognize that it's a sad thing and it's confusing and it's painful when you don't you don't understand, right? You don't understand why this loving couple was separated prematurely. You don't understand why these children were separated from their father. God knows. But if it was an accident, if it was an illness, we say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And sometimes that's all you can say. When it's the way that we're teaching, when it's the way that we're prioritizing our habits, when it is the standard that we're applying or it's what we're saying is our priority that is actually removing fathers from the equation, when it's how we teach, what we teach, how we model or exemplify or relate that is removing fathers from the equation, well then it seems to me we should do more than just say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When it's we ourselves who are removing the organ and demanding the function and the result is that there are less and less fathers who are engaged, if they're there at all, we need to attend to our contribution. If we've been negligent, we need to start doing the good that we know we ought to do with regards to the engagement of fathers and the equipping of young men to someday be fathers who are active and engaged, involved, who are present, who know how to be men, not just to do what's expected of them, but to be who God made them to be, who it is God calls them to be in his word. When it's what we are doing, what we are saying that is not true, and it's not edifying, we need to be willing to admit when actually we have contributed to this circumstance. We have driven away the men. If we have told men that they are not welcome because we incorrectly defined the trouble in our homes or in our communities as revolving around men being masculine, and the result is fatherlessness, and the result is lonely widows or single mothers, we need to think carefully about what it is we say moving forward, that it is true, that it is faithful, that it honors God, and that it builds others up, that it does edify. And yes, I realize what I was just saying as we were talking through Second Kings chapter 2 about youth programs, that might throw some for a loop where you say, how then could we ever tell, say for instance, some youth in a youth program, if you're going to conduct yourself like that, just stay home. Just stay home if you're not going to be respectful. How could we ever say that? Because then we're cutting them off. But then I point you back to 1 Corinthians and Paul's admonition, his correction, his stern scolding of the Corinthian church with regards to a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. Remove him for a time. Hand him over to Satan. 
for a time. If you're not willing to do that, well, then you're answering in the negative the question that is supposed to be rhetorical, is there not any among you who has wisdom to judge these matters? Do you not know we will judge angels? The saints are going to judge the world. How much more so matters pertaining to this life? Remove the ungodly man from your midst for a time. Hand him over to Satan. By 2 Corinthians, by the second epistle to the church in Corinth, Paul's saying, restore him. He's repentant now. But what do we find there? We find a very clear-cut, black-and-white example of someone being sinful. And the need is to remove them from fellowship. And this is the other side of the coin, to making sure that those who are present are actually being invested in. If you say, we're not going to deal with these things in a direct fashion, we're going to deal with these things more procedurally, and we're just going to say, nobody's allowed to do this sort of a thing because we don't want to confront one or two or three young men who are misbehaving. You've just signaled to all of the young men that if they want to be active, they're going to have to look elsewhere. If they want a positive vision of what it means to have fellowship, an energetic vision of what it means to express their energies, God-given, they're not going to find it in the church. And why? Because we've just said we don't have any authority. And we would rather say we don't have any authority so that we ourselves don't misuse authority or so that nobody says, how dare you? How dare you exercise and wield authority? But in that case, we're also signaling to the men who know they must have authority over the matters that pertain to them, their own affairs, in order to do what Paul says in Thessalonians, aspiring to live a quiet life, working with their hands, minding their own business, minding their own affairs means that they have to have authority over their own affairs. They have to have authority. If you say you have the responsibility, you don't have the authority. Every time you try to wield authority, we're going to slap your hand and say, tut, tut, no, no, that's not what Jesus would do. Then going back to John Seal's piece at AaronRen.com, we're teaching some variation on Gnosticism, and that's not of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. When we make men without chests, and expect of them virtue and honor, when we insist on a bloodless Christian masculinity for men, we're the ones who are contributing to the problem of fatherlessness and the absence of men in the churches of the next generation. Next up, though, let's consider Can Fatherhood Cure the Modern Male Malaise? A conversation with Richard Reeves, published January 19th of last year at publicdiscourse.com, thepublicdiscourse.com, the journal of the Witherspoon Institute, the more civilized alternative to the journal of the Withouterspoon Institute, where they just eat with their hands like cavemen, filed under family, feminism, interviews, and sexuality. Interestingly, the subtitle here is a quote Masculinity is more socially constructed than femininity. The script is more important. It has to be nurturing, not in the same way as mothers, but by being similarly other-centered, creating a surplus, caring for others, sacrificing for others. The question then is, what are we going to build that script around? That sense of being needed, giving, other-centered? My answer to that is fatherhood, end quote. Uh, spoiler alert, this is a long interview, and I'll read for you the last paragraph before I read anything else. Read any other quotes. 
because this is telling, and I have a major disagreement with Richard Reeves for how he finishes up this interview. You'll see why in just a moment. Let's read the last word from Richard Reeves. He says, and I quote, the moral norm around engaged responsible parenting is incredibly strong. So I'm taking that and elevating it, but not insisting that it takes place within marriage. If I get more dads more actively involved in their kids' lives, it might lead to more marriage. But even if it doesn't, I think it's a good thing, independent of marriage. That's why I land so heavily on fatherhood. You can only put one thumb on the scale, and that's where I'm putting it. I have two thumbs, actually. You probably do too. Maybe you don't, but I've got two. And you don't need to be tipping the scales. In fact, you should have equal weights and measures for the importance of fatherhood and the importance of marriage. And actually, fatherhood should be in the context of marriage. And that is to say, when fatherhood is not in the context of marriage, what you end up with is mixed households where you have half-siblings, you have step-siblings, you have men coming and going who are not the father, who are trying to father over top of the biological father. Where's the dad? And who does the child let's say especially the son, live with? Does the son live with his father and not with his mother if they're not married? Do the father and the mother live together and they're not married? What that communicates is that commitment is not that important. And if commitment is not that important between the father and the mother in marriage, then maybe the commitment really isn't there between the father and his children either. And that's a destabilizing and very uncertain future that is being presented to and signaled to the young man especially. That's a lack of order, that's disorder, which his inclination is going to be to address, and then there's going to be conflict if it's a stubborn refusal to do things in an orderly way on the part of one or both of his parents. There's going to be conflict, and there's going to be confusion. If the father lives apart from the mother and the mother is not married to the father and the father's involved, but the mother ends up getting married to somebody else or she just has boyfriends one after another after another and she gets pregnant by those boyfriends because she's not abstaining. If you're not going to require marriage, then why would you require abstinence outside of marriage either? I mean, come on, be reasonable. People have needs after all. But in that case, Just like there was one child, at least, conceived out of wedlock, why shouldn't there be another and another and another? And now this woman is raising multiple children by multiple fathers, perhaps, and having to juggle either how to keep them at bay so she raises these children how she thinks best as a continuation of her engaging in relations with one man after another after another to suit herself. Or she's trying to have all of these fathers involved in the raising of her children with each of them respectively. And it's a full-time job just to keep the schedules coordinated. Or else the fathers just come and go as suits them as a continuation of their having impregnated her in the first place 
to suit themselves, to please themselves. And all of that teaches all of the children in the mix a very important lesson about what they should aspire to or what you don't need to aspire to. In other words, they learn to be selfish from parents who are self-centered. You're saying that fatherhood should be an other-centered endeavor. We should teach men to be masculine and to be other-centered with regards to fatherhood, but why do you stop short of teaching men to be masculine and other-centered with regards to especially God? How about you be God-centered? And then as a result, consequently, you have the man be other-centered by emphasizing the need for him to commit to the woman who is the mother of his children or child for life, that he will always provide for her, he will always protect her, because she's also very important to the well-being of their child or children. Holistically, he will lead her and love her. We want the benefits, in other words, of children being raised with involved fathers, but we don't want the obligations, apparently. Richard V. Reeves is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead chair and leads the Boys and Men Project. His research focuses on boys and men, inequality, and social mobility. He should know as well as anybody that the statistics show the very best situation for boys especially is to grow up not just with a father involved, but with a father who is married and loving towards his mother. Otherwise, when there's conflict between the mother and the father, you end up with divided loyalties or children having to pick one. And that creates trust issues for all of the relationships between that child and authority figures for the rest of their life, where they're always expecting, I'm going to have to pick one. Or I can't trust any of these people and I need to be the one to figure it out. Or my parents are not nurturing and protective and they do not provide what it is that I need. And so I need to find as many other young men to surround myself with as it takes for me to feel safe and nurtured. And then perhaps you get dozens of young men who rove about in gangs and they get into trouble because nobody's giving them that sense of being others centered that starts with centering on God and then consequently informs our respect for those in authority over us, starting with our father and our mother, then working out to other adults. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Speak to the older women as you would mothers, we find in the New Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 2, you have at least 42 small boys. Where are their parents? Not mentioned. N.A., not available. Busy. Don't care. Not just in the moment, but leading up to this moment, because these are quite a lot of youth, boys in particular, who are disrespecting the man of God, and it costs them. They get mauled by two sheep heirs after the prophet curses them in the name of Yahweh. I almost don't need to read anything else of this article to know that this is more of the same. And yet, let's highlight a few quotes from the body of the interview. Why get a job? Why finish school? What's driving agency? I think that the combination of lots of cultural and economic changes has left many boys and men without a very good answer to their own why. Or how about this? Conservatives invoke a world where men had factory jobs and you could raise a family on one wage, 
They're careful not to say whose wage it is, but it's pretty hard not to read into that a valorization of a certain period of economic history. Or how about this? Traditional families were massively economically unequal and to some extent predicated on a division of economic power, which in my view was to the detriment of women. Okay, so here we have the talking points of feminism, if it wasn't clear yet. We don't want to offend the egalitarian and feminist sensibilities which rule the roost today. So we're baking the problem into our analysis of the problem and then coming up with solutions which are just going to be variations on the same theme. More of the same. Another quote, as a social scientist, my basic view is the future of marriage, if it has one, ouch, and rut row. The future of marriage, if it has one, is as a co-parenting contract. I think that's what's driving most upper middle class marriages. This is not profound. You don't need to be a social scientist to say that marriage is a co-parenting contract. But let me rephrase. Let me offer some synonyms and substitutions in a few places here. The future of marriage is a co-parenting covenant. And that's what's driving most upper middle class marriages. But then that is to say that the successful marriages also produce and protect wealth. And that wealth can be multi-generational when the parents are looking to what they're passing down to their children, not just from a material standpoint, but from a moral standpoint. You can put different lingo to it and strip this of its moral quality or its moral imperative. But when we refuse to obey what God has commanded and respect what God has instituted as having been commanded and instituted by God, you're robbing your life and the life of the community and the life of our country of its vitality. You may have temporarily helped reduce the sting of the social ills that come from fatherlessness, to put it in these terms, and to cap off the interview with marriage is non-essential, but you're not actually solving the problem to come at it this way. Richard Reeves. Here's another quote. If we want men to be good fathers, we as a culture have to give them a script and a role, something productive and positive for them to be doing instead of engaging in those harmful behaviors. Never mind what those harmful behaviors are for a moment. (laughs) The culture that gives a script and a role and encouragement and maybe even a rite of passage after which we say, we recognize and affirm that you are a man now and we're going to respect you as a man. We're going to respect your rights as a man has to be the church if it's going to look at all like what has been successful in the West over the last two millennia. It's going to have to be the church that gives a script and a role. But then what's better than that? And actually what precedes that is the church has to return to the script of the scriptures. God has already given us the script and the role for men to be not just good fathers and not just good husbands, but good men. The role model is Christ. The script is the scriptures. If you're looking for something productive and positive for men to be doing, we have to look at, as John Seal was writing for AaronWren.com, who are men and what is their telos and how do we know? Well, quite simply, God made man in his image after his likeness. Male and female, he created them and he blessed the man and his wife and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That gets at who they are and 
what they do. And if you reject that, then you get what we have. If you don't like what we have and you want something better, but you keep on rejecting that, well, then I've got news for you. You're going to keep on getting what it is that we've been getting. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Whoop-de-doo that you're a social scientist. Whoop-de-doo that you are associated with the Brookings Institute. And here we've got the Witherspoon Institute as well, highlighting your work. Here's your next quote from a public policy point of view. And I agree that there's no such thing as a naked public square. The moral message I want to send is the importance of responsible and engaged fatherhood. But this is godless. You've hollowed it out. You've gutted it, your moral message. And because you're uncomfortable with the authority of God driving this moral message and making it a moral imperative, you will consequently be uncomfortable with men having authority and being recognized as having authority. You can't just give men the responsibility or the blame when it goes badly. Men also have to have the authority. If you don't give them the authority, don't be surprised when they fail to meet their responsibilities. But then who is it that actually caused them to miss the mark? Was it only they themselves? Was it only their peer group? Was it only the base popular culture tempting them with vices, this direction and that? Or was it also you yourself as you claimed to be the moral authority in a godless way, all the while also inherently undermining your own authority by denying God's authority? One last quote. And this, perhaps repetitive, but Richard Reeves says, men have to learn how to nurture. They have to be taught. Masculinity is more socially constructed than femininity. Might I just suggest to you that we already have this box checked. This is not novel. This is not new. Men have to learn how to nurture. They have to be taught. Christ taught us by his example. And he commanded by his word how to love how to nurture, how to pursue the well-being of the other, of our neighbor, just as we pursue the well-being of our own self. We pursue the well-being of their selves. It's in the New Testament, as Paul is writing with the authority that God has given him in Christ, that we read that a man who doesn't provide for the needs of his family, especially the members of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever. In the context of providing for widows, and we were just talking about widows in the Faith and Justice piece from Alliance Defending Freedom. You have men getting involved to help take care of the children of this widow in the church. And that's how it should be. But even better is we equip men and we call men to be godly and holy and faithful to the word of God and to follow Christ. And if they will follow Christ, then they will know how to nurture and they will be taught. And their masculinity in the context of the church will be socially constructed in a way that is fruitful, in a way that is protective and it is provisional, in a way that loves the woman they are married to as the weaker vessel and honors her as the weaker vessel and lives with her in an understanding way, but also is not content to be browbeaten and blamed for everything, but also submitted to in nothing. The environment we have is hyper-focused and obsessively interested in approaching this situation from the standpoint of what's wrong with the men. And it's not until we're 
desperate enough for a solution to admit that this dysfunction can be traced back to the roots of radical egalitarianism and feminism. It's not until we're prepared to admit that humbly and repent of it that we're actually going to see the men flourishing and by turn the women flourishing and by turn the children flourishing. Will we be desperate enough for the solution anytime soon? That remains to be seen. For our last story, though, let's consider a piece by Jason Blevins, a bit of news related to agriculture in the Colorado Sun, published December 31st of 2023, titled The New York Billionaire Looking to Change Agriculture with Colorado Farmland. The subtitle reads, after amassing hundreds of thousands of acres of land, Stefan Soloviev says he wants to move away from competition to help farmers' bottom lines. Now, part of the reason I bring up this story in relation to all the rest is because Stefan Zuloviev, born and raised New York City kid, has 22 children. And I find that interesting in part because, as the article highlights, he's 48, he could pass for 30, but, quote, he's single and has 22 kids all under the age of 21. He's transforming the agricultural industry in eastern Colorado, providing both storage and train shipments for local farmers with two railroads and a new grain elevator that he plans to expand to hold 7 million bushels. Yeah, we need to know more about those kids. He married Stacy, a Mormon from Montana at age 22, and they divorced a decade ago, so he was 38, after having 11 kids. Quote, then life happened, says Soloviev who lives in Florida, but spent much of the past decade in Sacramento, California. Quote, the last 10 years have been quite a run. Now just pause for a moment. Whatever he's doing with agriculture in the state of Colorado, buying up quite a lot of land, getting very involved in the infrastructure, which is important for successful farming. You've got to not just plant the seeds, you've got to watch over them, make sure that they're properly watered, properly fertilized, You've got to know when to harvest them. You've got to have the capacity to harvest them. You've got to have some place to store what it is that you harvest. And you've got to be able to transport your harvest to market. That's when you get paid. And that's how you keep on farming. And the more efficiently, low-cost, transported your harvests are, the more, the more profitable your whole farming operation is going to be, the more likely it is that you're going to continue on being able to be a farmer. You're going to be able to at least maintain operations, but also expand operations. If you have a hiccup or a breakdown at any point, either in the planting or the harvesting or the transporting, not to mention the storing, but getting it to market, really. If you have any hiccups there, those incur costs. If your costs outrun your profits, well then you go under. And I wonder what Wendell Berry would think of Soloviev here, this billionaire buying up so much land and being highlighted for being such a benefit to smaller farmers. Such a benefit to the smaller farmers wanting to move away from competition, but also wanting to overhaul and transform the way that we do agriculture out here in the West. I'm less interested in what he's doing with regards to agriculture, and I'm more interested in the fact that He was married to a Mormon at 22, a Mormon from Montana for 16 years, and they had 11 children together. And since the time of his divorce, 
they've apparently had no more kids, I would gather, I would assume, but he's had 11 other children. And maybe he had some of those other 11 children while he was married to the Mormon from Montana. You're probably not going to get a lot of those details in an article highlighting him. If you want to have any follow-up articles in the future, you're just going to say this much and you're going to highlight the quote to summarize the whole thing. Then life happened. The last 10 years have been quite a run. Enough said, right? Well, it's not my business and it's not your business, but it does say something about how agriculture is going to be transformed in the West or in America more broadly. If guys like this have so much disposable income, so much wealth to throw around, and they start buying up hundreds of thousands of acres, they bought hundreds of thousands of acres because others were selling hundreds of thousands of acres. Why were those who were selling hundreds of thousands of acres selling? And oh, by the way, 16 years of marriage to a Mormon from Montana, 11 children later, he decides, they decide, that's it. We're done. And he has 11 other children with who? 11 other women? One other woman? It doesn't say. That's none of your business, but we're being told about it. Like it's an interesting fact. Is it an interesting fact only from an entertainment standpoint for the fun of it? to highlight a certain eccentricity on his part, to highlight the fact that he's a playboy. He's 48, but he could pass for 30. And elsewhere in the article, we're told about how he can keep up with 20-somethings in the sports leagues that he participates in. He's 48 with 22 children. And that in and of itself is not necessarily, in my book, a reason to totally dismiss him. Maybe he's doing a good thing with agriculture, or maybe he will be for 16 years. And at the end of 16 years, he'll decide that he wants to do something completely and radically different than he was doing for the last 16 years. And so he does as much in 11 other directions as he did the last 16 years over the next 10 years. And so half of his legacy is in the context of being committed to this woman or this project of moving away from competition to being more beneficial to the community. Maybe it's 16 years of trying to build up the community, giving them better access to transportation to get their harvests to market in a profitable way, and then something will flip. A switch will flip, and the next 10 years, he'll be going off in 11 other directions that bear little to no relation to his commitment of the previous 16 years. 22 children, that's a lot of children. And I speak as the father of nine. And I speak as somebody who stirs up a fair measure of controversy, not that that's my goal, but if I'm trying to read the biblical text and not virtue signal in reference to the men who are highlighted as having had a special relationship with God, and we learn something of God's character by seeing how God related to these men, and that's supposed to be instructive to how we relate to God and what we expect God's character will express in our lives, in our day, in the future. I've talked on this podcast many a time about Old Testament patriarchs and kings who had many wives and many children by many wives and concubines. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, where the biblical text does not 
expressly forbid that, you might say, I personally think that's a bad idea. I personally think that's foolish or that is far less than the best that we can do and they shouldn't have done that. Or maybe that was, as Augustine says, in On Christian Doctrine, a honorable thing in its time for the purpose of filling the earth and subduing it, fulfilling the dominion mandate that these men had. Many wives and many, many children, that was their objective for having many wives, to have many children. Maybe we say that and we say, today it's different. The earth is all filled up and every man should have one wife. But I take some lessons from the New Testament and I say, where we have the qualifications for overseers and deacons given from Paul to Timothy and Titus, and it is said that a man who would be an overseer or a deacon must be the husband of one wife, I read that as primarily excluding men who are polygamists, men who have multiple wives. It's not to say they can't be a part of the church any more than it is to say somebody who has many children by many women today can't be a part of the community or can't contribute meaningfully and beneficially to the community. But it is interesting that he divorced his wife of 16 years after having 11 kids with her. And if there's one thing that the scriptures are much more clear on, if there's one thing that the Bible conveys much more emphatically as being not good, according to God, it's not polygamy. It's not a man having multiple wives and having children, getting children by multiple wives. It's divorce. It was the hardness of heart on the part of the people that led to the law of Moses making allowances for divorce. But it's a bad sign. It's a sign of bad character when a man divorces his wife, particularly if his reasons are that he's a playboy and he wants to fool around. He's had 11 children by this woman and then he divorces her or did she divorce him? It doesn't say. But divorce is not good. And it's not good for very similar reasons to my objection to Richard Reeves talking about the need for involved fathers in the piece at Public Discourse, in the interview that he conducted with Serena Sigillito. When a man makes a commitment to a woman in marriage, and then that commitment is broken, you should watch out for what other commitments he makes to other people, he is also going to break. If all of a sudden you can't trust that what he says he's going to do is what he's actually going to do, when he very easily could have done it and he just decides not to, be careful about entering into agreements with him. Be careful about making yourself dependent on him. That's the point. Now his 22 children, maybe he's involved in all of their lives. Hopefully at a minimum, he's providing for their material well-being. If they're scattered all over the country or all over the world, if he's had 22 children by 12 women, hopefully he's at least providing adequate food, clothing, housing for those children. He's making sure that they get a good education. Hopefully also he's involved in their lives and he checks in on them. But what would be better clearly is that he was committed to the wife of his youth and he would be a better man for it. And those who enter into business deals with him or who are neighbors to him, would also have more peace of mind and should have more peace of mind. If the kind of a man they're making agreements with, they're making deals with, is the kind of a man who keeps his word, he keeps his promises, he keeps 
his commitments that gives stability to the economy in a way that men who break their promises and break their word can't. In fact, a very destabilizing thing to the market is when people say they're going to do one thing and they do something very, very different. They don't do the thing they said they were going to do and they do something very, very different. They said they were going to do a beneficial thing and they end up doing a harmful thing or they just don't do the beneficial thing. And now other people are left in a lurch and maybe markets are thrown into turmoil. And there's a lot of buying and selling and trading as people try to reposition so as to secure or shore up their position or to capitalize on newfound weakness, vulnerability. And in such ways, economies face major corrections. When people can be relied on to do what it is that they say they're going to do, when that importance is passed down from one generation to the next to the next, the markets that always love certainty and stability and confidence are able to innovate. They're able to grow in a way that is holistic, in a way that is sustainable. And it's not a question of competition, right? The problem is not competition, but the problem is community. Can you have a community in which competition helps everyone to do their best and be their best? And also what it is that they earn from doing their best is really and truly theirs. If there's covetousness and that's what drives competition, that's where you get slander, backbiting, scheming. That's where low trust actually puts sludge into every transaction, every interaction, every relationship. And that's where, like we were talking about transportation costs, for taking a harvest to market and actually getting the money back that you've invested in your whole farming season, that's where the costs go up between people when there's low trust. It's like the truck that you were going to haul the grain to the elevator in breaking down or running on half as many cylinders as it has. And so you're going half speed and you're just barely creeping along. And so you could either stop entirely and fix this thing, wait for parts to come in, or you can drive half speed back and forth, back and forth. That's just a small taste of what's affected when we're not calling men to being godly men. It's not enough to say that men should be others-centered in the abstract. So Loviev here is being advertised by Jason Blevins reporting at the Colorado Sun as being others-centered. He's moving away from competition to help farmers' bottom lines. But then 16 years from now, he could move right back to competition, and now everybody's dependent on him because he committed to helping them with their bottom line. And then maybe over the next 10 years, instead of being integral to their bottom line and their farming operation, he undermines them because he can get a better deal in 11 other directions. And, oh, look, so-and-so's place is for sale. Yeah, I think I'll buy that. Oh, look, so-and-so's place is also having an auction, and it looks like they're going to sell the land and everything, all the equipment. Well, it can't hurt to go and buy it up. I speak from experience as the son and grandson of generation after generation of farmers from eastern Montana. I am not a farmer today because dependence on government grants, for instance, only needed 
a corrupt individual overseeing those transactions to make the difference between good job, keep it up, and cash out. Everybody in the county knew that if they upset or offended this one official in the local USDA office, he would threaten to take their farm away, to make it the reality that they wouldn't be able to keep on farming. How so? Because they'd signed up for grant money. They'd signed up to participate in government programs that in exchange for their commitment to participating in, they would get grant money that they could use to buy seed and equipment and pay wages. And all this official had to do to torpedo their farming operations, all he had to do was say in his review of their paperwork that they had not complied with the terms of the program that they had signed up for, and then they would have to pay the money back. And if they couldn't pay the money back without liquidating all of their assets, well, then that was that. Whether his review was accurate or whether it was malicious and vindictive, higher-ups would never know if somebody didn't complain. And my parents complained. And nevertheless, it was such an ordeal. And there was so much corruption involved because the community listened to whatever he complained enough to apply pressure to my parents to back off, to let it go. My parents ended up liquidating the farming assets, the land, the machinery, everything. And so I know something of what can happen, not to say that's the angle Soloviev here, this New York City billionaire, is approaching this from, but I know what can happen when you move away from competition to dependence. And then the person with the strongest hand on the whole operation or what your business model now has come to depend on to the point that you don't even remember how to do things like you used to before you became dependent on them. If they all of a sudden decide to flex on you, that might be the end of your farming operation. And then they just buy up your farm when you cash out, when you liquidate, because you can't keep up. That sort of a thing happens. That sort of thing can happen here, not to say that it will happen here, but a word of caution, this man's approach to marriage does give credible reasons to those who would engage in business deals or who would count on him. It does give credible reasons for them to be wary and perhaps not make themselves quite so dependent. But then one other thing we have to admit about our cultural context is that as we normalize serial monogamy, easy divorce, no-fault divorce, as we normalize men having children out of wedlock, one after another after another, and then not being involved in their children's lives, as we normalize that, as we say, that's no big deal, we're less and less wary when we should be wary because we just affirmed that, right? We just laughed about it. We just joked about it. We just said, hey, that's no big deal, right? It's fine. It's great, actually. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Life got crazy, huh? Yeah. Well, anyway, back to agriculture. Wendell Berry's book comes to mind, Culture and Agriculture. It's in moments like these that whole regions make a decision about their character and about the sort of people they're going to be moving forward, not just for the next few years, but for generations to come. So we need to decide well. We need to think rightly and not be taken in and overawed by what might be some smooth talk, sweet words, impressive numbers and visuals, 
and a lot of propaganda because that all will bite you in the end if you're not wise, if you don't have a God-centered view of man, if you don't have a keen anthropology informed by God's word. So in conclusion, men need to be men. Boys need to be raised to be men. Boys need fathers who are married to their mothers to teach them and to show them what it means to be men someday. But those men who are married to the mothers of their children and they're raising their sons in particular, but also their daughters, of course, of course, those men need to be following after Christ if they're going to love their wife as Christ loved the church, if they're going to live with their wife in an understanding way. You reject that and you can't pretend surprise, not around me anyways, when you just get more and more of the same and it breaks down. It's going to spiral down and down and down and down. And it's not unique to our culture. It's not just because we were at one time Christian that this is so destabilizing. In all times and places, this is how it goes. That's the death of a culture and a people. Polybius writes in his postmortem on Greek civilization, commissioned by the Romans, by the way, who had conquered the Greeks, but were terribly curious. What happened, right? What went wrong? You guys were so advanced and you were so sophisticated. You were so wise. What happened? Polybius writes that the beginning of it was that men became disinterested in marriage and having children. And if they did get married, they tried to have only one or two children and those they didn't really pay much attention to. They didn't attend to them to raise them. And then they became effeminate. They pursued the company of other men and they were frivolous and they were immature And it doesn't take very long of that for the countryside to be depopulated, for the population of your city and your culture to shrink, and for what's left of the population of your people to be very weak and even anemic morally and mentally when a more assertive, more masculine outsider enters your territory. That's exactly what happened with the Romans and the Greeks. And that's exactly what Polybius told the Romans. Why would that be the case? Why would that be true in a way that is so confirming of what the Bible tells us about men and women and cultures and families and marriage and parenting and civilization? Well, because it's true, because it's all true, what we find in scripture. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.